while you were asleep, Christians in Malawi were gathered in worship. While you were asleep, Chinese believers were quietly setting up folding chairs and pulling out hidden Bibles from secret compartments to study the word of God together. Iranian Christians were secretly baptizing new believers in pools and rivers so that they wouldn't get caught by the government. You know, I think sometimes we forget it, but every Saturday night when we close our eyes in sleep, songs are being sung, hearts are being changed, and people from every tribe, nation, and tongue are being brought into the kingdom of God. Isn't that amazing? You're doing nothing but snoring. And God's hand is moving. Saving Russians. Ukrainians, Kazakhstanis and Pakistanis and Afghanis and Chinese, Japanese, Taiwanese, Indians, Congolese, Sudanese, moving in a powerful way, bringing in thousands and thousands and thousands that will make up a part of the innumerable crowd that will be speaking every, every language and tongue around the throne of Jesus while you sleep. Oh my goodness. We close our eyes. We have our different anxieties. We have our different fears. We, we have our different focuses. And yet, while we're struggling to fall asleep, God is not struggling in winning his kingdom. We wake up on Sunday morning and gather. Now for us, we think it's worship day, right? It's the day that we come to worship. Hopefully every day is worship day for you, but it's particularly that day we wake up and we decide to come to the church building to gather together, to sing the songs to one another, to pray for one another, to relate with one another, and to worship Jesus together as the center of our existence. It's all about him. But here's the reality. You weren't doing it first. You're joining in a song that began last night. You're joining in worship that began in another country last night. It's a song that is being perpetually sung to King Jesus. Now, why is this so? It is because God has raised up faithful people who have obeyed the command given in Matthew 28. It's because people read, they listened, and they obeyed what Jesus called us to do. My friends, you will not hear an American-centric gospel behind this pulpit today. You will hear a Jesus-centered gospel. You will have a Jesus-centered gospel that has global ramifications. We have joy. And the fact that Chinese-speaking believers will be worshiping alongside ourselves, that Malawians have heard the gospel truth, and their eternity has been forever changed, that they will receive the cup of overabundant gladness, joy, and amazing peace. God's kindness pouring out upon kindness just as it does for you. 
Let us not be self-centered Christians. Let us be Jesus-centered disciples who go and make disciples, for that is what Jesus intends of you. My friends, God's kingdom is being built through the salvation of the people that live all across the earth. Now, just if you're new here, Matthew's gospel has demonstrated one particular message clearly. Jesus is the king who has all authority. There's nothing outside the realm of his power. He's not a king who has limits. He has a boundless kingdom. He has authority over stormy seas. He can touch a leprous man and make him whole, make him clean. He can drive out demons with the very word. He teaches and what he says has power and authority. And even death itself must submit to his authority. It cannot hold him. Matthew's gospel's Filled with that, now we come to the end of Matthew and we find that Jesus' all-encompassing authority extends to all nations. He loves them all. He wants them all. And he wants them around his throne. It is this all-encompassing authority that extends to all nations that forms the charter of Grace Church's existence and mission. You realize when we gather, we say that we as a church exist to make disciples of Jesus by God's grace for his glory. That's the reason we're a church. We're not here because we like the particular music style. We didn't get together because we all agreed that gray chairs are what's in style. We're not together even because we have the same political leanings. We get together because we all agree that there is one king and that we have one mission to make disciples who will then follow that king by his grace for his glory. That's why we exist. That's the center, the center of who we are. Whether it's individually or corporately, because Jesus is king of the earth, we are called to go to all the earth, proclaiming him as king in whom all must believe for salvation. Now, Matthew 28, 16 through 20, typically referred to as the Great Commission. Most of us, if we have been raised in a church or if we even had Christian parents, most of us have heard the Great Commission. We, we, we don't need much explanation when someone says, yeah, I'm trying to fulfill the Great Commission or I'm trying to obey the Great Commission. The problem is, whenever the words Great Commission are spoken, it's generally in the context of a missions conference, a missions Sunday, right? So we have our missions month where we're going to focus on the Great Commission. We're going to invite some missionary to come preach behind the pulpit and talk about why you should engage in the Great Commission. There's nothing wrong with that. That is an appropriate application of the Great Commission to focus in on it at certain points. But man, are we misguided if we think that the Great Commission, that Matthew 28 is simply the key text of a few special Sundays, or that Matthew 28 is simply the commission given to a few special people. My friends, I want to flip it upside down and put it back on you. The Great Commission is the general mandate, the marching orders that governs every Christian's life. It's for you. 
It's not just for me as a pastor. It's not for Mike as the missions leader. It's not for all those who just engage in short-term missions. It's for you particularly, which means that if you don't do it, you are not actively obeying Jesus. The Great Commission is a great command. Go and make disciples. If you're not doing that, you are not being obedient. That's what we're called to. That's who we're supposed to be. We're supposed to not just believe that the Great Commission is great and true. We're supposed to engage in it personally. Why? Well, because the Great Commission has everything to do with Jesus's kingship. You realize that the Great Commission is founded on those words, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Have you ever thought that the way that you make, how you engage in the mission reveals how much or consequently how little you think of the kingship of Christ. We're not just talking about engaging and raising $3,000 on a short-term mission. I don't think it's less than that. I think it certainly includes that. But I'm talking about an all-out lifestyle that has a single focus on making disciples of Jesus. It has everything to do with how you view his kingship. You realize the one thing that moved Peter from being this denying Peter, this blasphemous, may God strike me dead if I know the man. You know that, that guy that denied Jesus three times. It is the, the conviction that Jesus is king over all the earth that Peter goes and is killed. That Thomas goes and is speared to death. That Matthew goes and dies, we think, in Ethiopia. Isn't that crazy to think that the man who wrote this gospel most likely died in a North African country, all because he believed the truth that Jesus is the king. So who is the Great Commission for? Anyone who sincerely believes that Jesus is the king. If you truly buy into that, If you truly believe that, then the Great Commission is for you. You are to be a disciple-making disciple. So today we're going to look a little deeper at this commission, and my hope is to pinpoint several things that might change your mind just a little bit about what you're called to do. We're going to consider the place where the Great Commission was given. We're going to consider the person who gave it. We're going to look at the command itself, and then finally we're going to look at the amazing promise he gave us alongside this command. And by looking at each of these elements, I hope that you will open your eyes to see what your responsibility is as a believer, not just your duty, but your joyful work, your joyful work. There are a number of, of, of sad angry, hurt Christians in the world, and they can't seem to explain why they're sad, mad, angry. My friends, can I offer to you, it could be, might be many things, but it could be that you're living in disobedience to this text, that you have fallen into some kind of navel gazing that makes yourself the center of it all, your world, your problems, your agenda, the center of it all. Matthew 28 confronts that navel gazing It tells you to lift up your eyes from yourself and to see what God's doing in the nations. Now, and my voice is only going to get worse as we go. So 
When we last left off Matthew's gospel, Jesus told the Marys who sought him at the empty tomb, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. Why Galilee? My friends, we like, Gal- we like the thought of Galilee. We, we read of Galilee. Galilee is a very pretty place to visit. But Galilee back then was no tourist attraction. It wasn't this place that everybody had on their bucket list to go. It was the backwater, backwoods, Gentile-ridden region of Israel. It was the place where they had brothels set up everywhere. It was the place where the Romans set up temples and worshiped their gods everywhere. It was a very broken and dark place. In fact, in Isaiah uh, chapter 9, it's described as the epicenter of darkness. This is the place where people live in darkness. Upon them a light shall dawn who have dwelt in darkness. That is Isaiah 9. So brokenness, <coughs> spiritual apostasy, and sin. That's Galilee. When Jesus began his ministry in Matthew 4, he took up residence, guess where? In Galilee. Why? Why not Jerusalem? Jesus, I mean, let me just be his PR representative here for a second. Wouldn't it be far better for Jesus to set up shop in Jerusalem? I mean, you have the beautiful temple. You've got great views from the Mount of Olives. You'll be rubbing shoulders with the politically powerful. You'll be, you'll be in the, the most important place in Israel. Jesus starts in Galilee because he wants everybody to know that the gospel is for the broken. The brightest light of the gospel shines in the darkest places. It begins in the depths of humanity's fall, in the muck, in the mud, in the mire. That's Galilee. It's in the places where Magdala sits. That's that's in Galilee. You realize that Mary of Magdalene was a Galilean. The woman who was possessed by seven demons and a prostitute. The first woman to see Jesus raised from the dead. Jesus is setting the tone for his whole ministry when he starts off in Galilee. I have come for the hurting and the broken. Is it any irony that that's where it all ends? He takes them back to Galilee. That's where he gives them their marching orders. Well, boys, it starts here. All the earth, Ovilians, are going to hear the gospel because of the mountain you stand on in Galilee. Well, boys, Texans are going to become my disciples because you're going to obey me and the whole world is going to wrap around. Somebody's going to take it to Europe. Somebody's going to take it to North Africa. Somebody's going to try to take it to Asia and they're going to fight hard. But man, one day China is going to have it. They're going to kill you and Thousands will die, but on their bones, my church will be built. Matthew will take it to Ethiopia and die. Peter will take it to Rome and die. Paul struggles and strives to take it to Spain. We don't know if he did, but if he did, man, that's going to be the farthest reaches the gospel has ever gone. Spain was reached. Then someone took it to England And then someone brought it to America. And then someone brought it to you. 
all because of this backwoods, backwater, dark, filthy, nasty, scum of the earth type place like Galilee. It's an amazing signal that the gospel doesn't shy away or avoid the broken and dark places of the earth. To this day, there are people in brothels all around the world getting saved because of somebody preaching the gospel. My friends, to this day, there are people being called out of sin and brokenness because somebody has preached the gospel to them this day. The gospel doesn't shy away from the broken places. Now, not only does he call the disciples back to Galilee, he calls them to a mountain. Matthew's very intentional. He doesn't have any unimportant details. So Matthew is is wanting you to understand this is on a mountain. Why a mountain? What would, ins- what would a mountain insinuate about Jesus' ministry? Well, if you go back and you, lo- you read your Old Testament text, you find that the central hope of God's kingdom is that it will be like a high mountain that covers the earth. You go back to Daniel 2, for example, and Daniel uh, explains the dream to Nebuchadnezzar about the, the statue, all these empires, right? Beginning with Babylon, and then you've got uh, Persia, and you've got Greece, and then you've got Romans. All of that falls and it's knocked over by a tiny stone, not cut from human hands. In other words, it's an empire not built by a human emperor. A tiny stone, a pebble, comes and knocks down the statue of the kingdoms of the earth, and then it grows into a large mountain. That's the kingdom of God. You go to Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 3, and here's what you read. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains. And shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his path. Just knowing that about the mountain, just knowing that detail, that this is the prophetic hope. That God's kingdom will be like the largest mountain covering all the earth, and that's there that the nations will be taught God's way. Is it any dink, as you say in Texas, that Jesus now stands on a mountain, tells them to go to all the nations, and do what? Teach them my commandments. He takes them to this Galilean mountain to show them the prophetic hope is becoming true. The mountain will grow to extend to all of the earth. The mustard seed will grow to be the tallest tree in all the garden. The leaven will leaven the entire lump of yeast because God's kingdom will grow. It begins with a bunch of fishermen and backwoods Galileans in a backwoods place like Galilee and a resurrected savior who calls them to go. I think all this should stir up our hearts to joy. My friends, do you realize that right now, when Jesus stands on this mountain, he stands with all authority. I think he, he sees all of history. He is God in flesh at this moment. He knew what would happen in 2020. He knew what would happen in 2021. He knew what would happen before then. He saw Jerusalem's fall. He saw Rome fall. He saw the Holy Roman Empire fall. He saw every single moment in history. He knows it. He's God. And he can stand there in confidence 
and say definitively that his kingdom will grow and reach all nations of the earth from Galilee. My friends, I don't know what fears you're struggling with. I don't know what you're dealing with today. Here's what I can tell you. You can have confidence in that God's kingdom will expand to cover all the earth as the waters cover the sea. He says so in Habakkuk 2.14. You may not like what's going on in Venezuela right now, but Venezuela belongs to King Jesus. He will make it right. We may not like the way that the Viet Cong kind of harasses Christians in Vietnam, but Vietnam belongs to King Jesus. I think the same thing can be said of Washington, D.C. My friends, Jesus is the king. His kingdom will grow. He invades the world with light, starting from Galilee. So here we are in Galilee. That's the place on a mountain. Disciples see resurrected Jesus. Keep in mind, this isn't a normal reunion. They're like, oh, look, it's Jesus. No, it's not. It's not the way it is, right? They see the one who was dead. D-E-A-D, dead. I'm glad I spelt it right, because that would have been embarrassing. (laughs) He was dead, cold, in a tomb, no pulse, no beating heart, dead. Stone rolled over the mouth of the tomb, buried. Broken body. And now here he is alive. What would you do if you had that experience? Again, that's not no, that's, that's, that's no normal chummy little visit, right? Like, hey, Jesus, this is, this is profound. The dead Savior is back. The dead Messiah now lives. Death itself could not hold him. Who then is this Jesus so powerful to stand alive even after dying? That's who this Jesus is. Stands before them alive. Matthew says, as in this context of this living Jesus, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You know, Matthew doesn't just want us to bask in the fact that God reaches even the darkest, broken, most hurting places of the world like Galilee. He wants us to understand who the person is that gives us the Great Commission itself. He wants us to bask in the glory of the risen Lord. Now, there's some scholars that say that this word worship here just simply means knelt down or bow before. Yeah, that's true. You know, it it can be a general knelt down in the Greek. But I think Matthew intends for you to see this in all senses of the term. This is worship. This is falling down before the Lord himself. This is falling down before God. And how appropriate is it? This is the the son of man. This is the one who has gone to the ancient of days. God himself and has been given dominion and glory and the kingdom. He says as much. All authority. Do you know how much all authority is? All authority. There's nothing outside the scope of that. All authority. Every bird that flies. Every bird that smacks dead into our clean windows. 
Every bug that hits your windshield, every event in history, the governing powers of the nations, every pine cone that falls in the beautiful forest, every beetle that crawls on the ground, every massive and mighty angel in heaven, every terrifying demon that hides in the dark corners of the world, everything is under his hand. My friends... This is King Jesus. All authority. Now, if I met someone that had all authority in Ovilla, that'd be impressive. All authority in Texas. Praise God, maybe ERCOT might finally get right. (laughs) If I met someone that had all authority in the United States, that'd be amazing. If I met someone who had all authority on earth, that would be amazing. My friends, we don't have a Jesus that's just authoritative over a villa, just authoritative over Texas, just authoritative over the U.S., or even the earth. All authority in heaven, things you don't see, and earth. He's in charge of it all. It's been said before, not one molecule floats through the atmosphere without him causing it to happen. He's the one that sustains it, holds it all together. That's Jesus. And it comes from his own mouth. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's the one Genesis 49 talks about when it says the scepter does not depart from his hand until the tribute, literally the obedience of the nations comes to him. They will all submit. They will all bow before and they will do so whether they like it or not. But those who do willingly, blessings, peace, healing, Comfort. My friends, we, we balk at that sometimes. The all authoritative Jesus who calls for submission as if he's a dictator. My friends, no, think of him as the doctor that has figured out the nasty problem of cancer. You must come to him to be healed. And you coming to him will lead to your blessing. You don't, you die. That's, that's it. There's no life outside of him. So we must submit in order to live. Outside of him, we die. He's the all-authoritative king. Now, Matthew makes it clear that Jesus is risen. He's worshipful. He's authoritative. But what about his disciples? Now, I would think if I'm writing Matthew's gospel, this is gonna, we're going to have a happy ending. Let's tie up all the loose ends. Let's make it great. Matthew, being the detail anal person that he is, wants you to understand that they all worshiped, yes. But some doubted. I'm just glad he didn't name names. <clears throat> now, it's an interesting detail, isn't it? What would be the point that some doubted? What, what would that even So Remember, Matthew's intentional here. He's a profound writer. Why would he want you to know that some of them doubted? He's not faith-shaming any of his fellow disciples here. In, in fact, he could have very well been one of the ones who doubted. He might have said some doubted because, a.k.a. Matthew doubted. Who knows? Why would he say that some doubted? How does it fit into this altogether amazing moment? Well, as subtle as it may be, the fact that some doubted foreshadows 
that the discipleship of the world will not happen because of the disciples. They're imperfect men. They all worship. (coughs) They all bow. But they don't all have perfect faith. (coughs) The nations will not be reached because these 11 disciples have some exalted perfect faith. Can you just bask in what that means for you? How many of you feel weak? How many of you feel as if your faith just doesn't quite match up? How many of you have ever had those moments where you stumble and trip and fall flat on your face? Good news. God's kingdom growth does not depend on you. You doubt, just like they doubted. You falter, just like they faltered. And it's in the context of some of these disciples doubting. I'm, I'm thinking, guys, get it together. Jesus just rose from the grave. You've got something important to do. This is no time to doubt. You're going to screw it up. Don't doubt. Jesus is not balked by their doubting at all. He doesn't, he doesn't bat an eye at the fact that some of them doubt. My friends, let us not be duped into thinking that the nation's will be won by our skill, intellect, or faithfulness. It's amazing. Most Great Commission sermons talk about how much you're needed. You're needed. My friends, you're not needed. You're wanted. You're not needed. Jesus didn't need all those children saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. He said, if they didn't do it, rocks would do it. You're not needed. You're wanted. You're invited. You don't go. You don't make disciples. You don't speak the name of Jesus. I hate to tell you this. China will be one without you. Mexico will be every bit of much as Jesus' kingdom without you. But what a blessing it would be to be a part of that. Can you imagine missing out on something so amazing? You might as well miss your own kid's birthday party or your own wedding than miss out on the Great Commission. It's a joyful endeavor we get to be a part of. God will raise up others without you. Do not be duped in the thinking it depends on you. The nations will be won because Jesus' authority extends to everywhere. You are not sufficient for the task. Jesus is. He will accomplish the Great Commission by his own authority. He is the one who saves, and we are the ones who are invited into this proclamational work. My friends, we don't need you to be perfect. We don't need you to have a strong faith. We don't need you to have this, this I never fall, I never fail, I never sin kind of pretend attitude. We need broken disciples who depend on the unbroken Savior to make disciples. That's how Jesus reaches the nations. You are the broken clay jar. Isn't it amazing that's in this context of some of them doubting that Matthew's writing this knowing that kingdoms of the earth are being reached through doubting disciples. How profound is that for us? So now let's look at the command. This is the actual command, our marching orders. This is the actual commission that we've been talking about in the Great Commission. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now I think it's interesting there just to point out little triune doctrine here a moment. It's a singular name, not in the names of, in the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it's a triune doctrine. So baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The therefore in this verse is connected with that, as we've already said, all authority. Because he owns it all, because he's king of all, therefore, go. Now, in recent decades, uh, people have, have made this uh, connection that the word go here is a, partible, a participle. Um, and because it's a participle, it doesn't mean go like an imperative go. It means as you go. That means as you go about your day. That's all well and good. That's true. It is a participle. And you would be faithful to translate this as you go. The irony is, is most of the people that I hear saying that argument aren't going at all. Like even as they go, they're not reaching disciples. Sure, as you go to the gym, make disciples. As you go to the piano recital, make disciples. As you go to the grocery store, make disciples. If you're going to use that argument and say, this doesn't mean go, but as you go, then you better be going in some form. It doesn't really matter how you translate that word, go as an imperative, or as you go as a participle, it's still implicit that you're going. My friends, God has salted our congregation with people that have different giftings and skill sets. Some of us are just driven for the nations, and some of us are driven for neighbors. My friends, if we work together and stop bickering about whether it means go or as you go, or local missions versus global missions, if we just go, guess what? Neighbors and nations hear the gospel. Nobody cares how you translate it. The implicit is that you're going. You're going across the street, or you're going across the ocean. It doesn't matter. Go make disciples. Why? Because he is authoritative. He is king of Malawi. We're not going to make Jesus king of Malawi. We're going because Jesus is king of Malawi, and the Malawians need to hear about it. The Dominican Republicans don't need to be kind of, uh, we, don't, we don't need to bring them in to accept and, hey, Jesus can be king of Dominican. No, he is king of the DR. And it is a blessing to them to recognize that. That is why we go. We go. Neighbors, nations, proclaiming the all-encompassing authority of our King Jesus. Now that going and making disciples, making disciples there is the primary imperative. This is where it all boils down to. Now you might be wondering, what is a disciple? A disciple is simply someone who trusts in and follows Jesus. They depend on him. They submit to him in every facet of life. Okay. Now you might be thinking Christian. Yeah, disciples are Christians for sure. But we want, to, we want to be clear here. There are some people that call themselves Christians that do not, do not obey Jesus in every facet of life. They have hidden pockets where they're Christians on Sunday and disobedient on Monday. That's not what's in view with disciple. Disciples are people who say, here's my marriage, here's my money, here's my career, here's my time, here's my habits, here's my words, here's my thoughts, here's my social media posts. Here's my interactions with others. Here's my personal opinions. Here's my public views. A disciple 
lays it all out on the table and says, it's yours, Jesus. That's what we mean by disciple. Now, if you're not that, then you need to have a come to Jesus moment, literally. Where you then give him it all. Making disciples comes to two basic actions, baptizing and teaching. My friend, sometimes missions work can veer on one side or the other. They are baptized really well or they teach really well, but the Great Commission involves both. Baptism has to do with the initial conversion process in which someone who has heard the gospel believes it and publicly proclaims their faith and submission to Christ. That's what we do every time we baptize someone. It's not some hokey, mythical action that we do. We are giving you a visible picture of something invisible that's happened. They have died to themselves. They have been raised up with Christ. They have died to their own sovereignty. They're no longer king. They're a dead sovereign. They're the old one. And they're raised up to a new reign where Christ is king. My friends, that's what's amazing about baptism when we see it. This was amazing when, when we were doing baptisms in China. It was, just, it was, it was profound, heart-pumping work. Because you're getting all these Chinese people that are declaring that not even the government has supreme control over their lives. But even more than the government, not even they themselves have supreme control and right. They're literally giving it all to him. That's what it means to baptize him in the name of. In other words, you're stamping them with the authoritative, this man belongs or this woman belongs to Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The triune God has worked to save And therefore, this person is his. So we baptize people. We do make converts. We call them out of the darkness. We call them into the marvelous light. The the Son of God is moving. It is a, a declaration that they have been bought with a price. That's all well and good. But notice that Jesus doesn't simply set out to make converts. My friends, sometimes we settle with, just get them to say a prayer. That is not in Jesus' purview. Jesus wants them baptized, which means he does want them to become converts, but discipleship work includes everything. He wants disciples, which means that he wants them to follow all of his teachings in every aspect of life. Notice he doesn't just say baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He also says, and in Greek it's the, it's the same participle, which means that this is equal to. Okay, so we're baptizing and teaching them all that I have commanded you. Again, what does the word all mean? All. You go back and you look at Jesus' teaching. He taught the scriptures. It has everything that we need for life and godliness. It's sufficient to teach us how to do marriage. It's sufficient how to relate to one another, how to forgive, how to love, how to show grace, how to avoid sin. It means that you're not just out for a person to sign a piece of paper saying that they have converted. It means that you're out after their porn addiction. You want to hear an amazing story of a man who's doing this well. Just go sit with 
uh, Adam and talk about Shadrach. Shadrach would preach the gospel and he says, you've been thinking lustful thoughts, haven't you? Yeah, you want to believe in Jesus, you got to stop that. Isn't that amazing? Have you ever thought about that it's more than just running through a presentation, that when you're talking to people about the gospel, you're out to submit every aspect of that person's life to King Jesus. You want them to rethink the way they do marriage. You want the marital bed to now glorify God instead of being this dark and dirty, nasty thing they, taught, they hide. You want their thoughts, their very thoughts, the things you can't see. You want those things to glorify God. My friends, we are out after it all. Who cares about reaching 2% of every nation? Now, that's the way that missions used to talk about it, that they would go to nations that had 2% or less. Those were the unreached people groups. We'd reach 2% and then we'd move on. You know what happened? China reached 2% once. You know what happened after a little while? It was less than 2% again. Because you can baptize people and baptize people and baptize people. You don't teach them, they won't baptize others. They won't teach their kids. Their families will not hear the good news of Jesus Christ. My friends, is an all-encompassing authority teaching them that God does care who you sleep with. Because he loves you and he wants what's best for you. And he has made a way to glorify him even with who you sleep with. God does care what you say to people. Because he's made you in his image. And what you say should reflect his love and grace and mercy. God does care even the thoughts you think. Why? Because he made your brain. And he made it to worship him. He cares the way that you look at the ocean because he made every wave and that rhythm of every wave coming in, that melody of creation. He made that so that you could stand on the beach and worship your father. He cares about it all. In John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep, your, you will keep my commandments. So in essence, what we're doing in teaching them We're teaching them how to love Jesus with all that they have. You have $5, you can love Jesus with $5. You have speaking gifts, you can love Jesus with speaking gifts. You have kids, you can love Jesus with your kids. You have time, you can love Jesus with your time. You have brokenness, even your brokenness can be an act of love for Jesus when you bring it to him. He loves it. He heals it. Nothing expresses love to me more than when my children come to me to kiss the boo-boo. It's when they don't want me to look at it. It's when they go, no, daddy, I got it. That's, that's hurtful. But I love my kids even when they have boo-boos. What a great act of love when they come with the boo-boo to kiss. My friends, your brokenness, my kids think it's funny. Your brokenness can even be a means by which you love Jesus when you bring it to him. Jesus, I'm hurting. Jesus, I've grown cold. Jesus, help me. 
That can be an amazing act of love. So in discipleship, we're teaching people all these things. We're not just adding their name to the roster. We're not just saying, now you're on the team. Here's your jersey. No, we're saying, here's your life. Here's your king. So as you can tell, it's no small task. For centuries, faithful Christians have dedicated their lives so that just one people group could hear the good news and be changed forever by being obedient to it. Uh, Some of you may have heard the name Adoniram Judson. Uh, He spent nearly 40 years on the mission field. He's one of my favorite missionaries. Um, When right before we moved to China, I picked up To the Golden Shore. If you haven't read it, don't pick it up unless you're ready for your life to be wrecked. Because this isn't just some elitism here. This is what normal Christians do when they when they find out that God is at work in the nations. He left for Burma, now Myanmar, in 1812. He died in 1850, and he worked there faithfully, all for one goal. If you were to ask Adonai, if he were still alive today, if you were to ask him, what is the one thing that you're proudest of? What is the one work that you hope lives far beyond you? He'd hold up his Burmese Bible that he translated. It wasn't just making converts to him. It was that their children and their children's children and Burmese in 2021 would still be reading Adoniram Judson's translation of the Holy Scriptures, teaching them how to obey every command of God. You read his story, I mean, you're, you're talking about an incra- a crazy life, a 19-month imprisonment. <clears throat> and we're not talking about in this nice air-conditioned jail cell. We're talking about on the floor where people are dying of pneumonia in their own muck, chained together hands and feet, Allowed out only at certain days to get some airtime and to go to the bathroom. It's a Burmese jail at its lowest. He lost not just one wife, he lost two wives, three wives to the mission field. He brought over Nancy. Nancy died after taking care of him in prison. She gave, she had labor, she died, and then guess what? The baby died. He married a second wife. She died. He married a third wife. She died. You might be saying, why in the heck are you telling us this? This is going to make no one want to go to missions. Here's why I'm telling you this. Because Jesus is worth it. You see, Adonai gave it all. He risked it all. Why? Just so that Burmese could be represented around the throne. Just so that one people group would be worshiping Jesus in their language around the throne. My friends, some of us would give our lives for a lot of different things. The nations should be on that list. You know, missiologists say that there's anywhere between 13,000 to 24,000 people groups in the world. Now, if you don't know what a people group, that's an ethno-linguistic group, okay? It's a group that calls themselves just that, a group, right? They speak either the same language or they're part of the same ethnicity or both. There's a people group. Now, out of those people groups, they say about 7,419 are unreached. About 42% of the people in the world. Now, you've heard these statistics before, so I, I know I'm not doing anything profound or new. 42% of the people in the world have not even been engaged. They've either been superficially reached or not reached at all, which means that there's not a Bible in their language. There's not a sustaining missionary. When you get to unreached and unengaged, that means that there's not even been anyone on their soil who claims the name of Christ. 
My friends, Jesus calls us to that work. Can you imagine if we did just like what we described in making disciples of children, if the whole community got together and they said, take our money, take our time, take our people, take our sons, take our daughters and use it to make disciples of the world. Because Jesus owns Burma. We need, Jesus doesn't need, but we need more Adrenaim Judsons to step up. We need, as a church, parents to let their children launch off into unreached, unengaged places. I'll never, ever, ever begin to tell you the pain it was to say goodbye to our families and the pain it was for them. My mom-in-law's here. You should have seen the tears that were flowing as they kissed their one of two daughters, their oldest daughter, goodbye at the airport to go to China. Who in their right mind would do that, right? I mean, we struggle enough sending them off to college. But now they're going to go waste their lives living among some people group, doing God knows what, facing the risk of God knows what. It's not a waste to God. That is how his kingdom grows, how he chooses to let his kingdom grow. My friends, my vision, my hope is not my vision, Jesus' vision for Grace Church is that we would grow up together so that Five to 10 years from now, we are sending out our first missionaries from this church. And I'm not talking about to go down the street 20 minutes down the road. We definitely need to send people that way. I'm talking about full-fledged, they're going to give their lives possibly, kind of missionaries. We can do that. That's what we're called to do. We continue to fight. We want downtown Dallas. We want Chicago, we want Memphis, we want China, we want Iran. Because it's already Jesus's. And Jesus promises that if we do this work, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Who is it that does it? Not just you, not just me. Sure, we participate in it. We engage with it, but it is Jesus' work through and through. He is the one who saves. I absolutely believe that if you engage in reaching out to your neighbors, whether that's going and, witness, going and uh, sharing at the First Look Baby Center that's in Waxahachie. Is it still in Waxahachie? Is it Waxahachie address? Yeah, Waxahachie address. Go hang out with some moms that are thinking about aborting their babies. Go down to the Muslim mosque that's just down the road. You know, there's a big one being built here in DeSoto. Go there and engage with people. Go on a short-term mission trip. We have spots in DR still. We have Malawi coming up. Watch your life get wrecked. Watch your life get wrecked. Well, no, no, that's not for me. That's for somebody else. No, it's for you. Go and make disciples. Nothing opens our eyes more to the hidden work of God than seeing someone else renounce their own sovereignty in their own language and proclaiming 
Jesus as Lord. Some of you may not be able to go. I totally understand that. You can still go here and you can still send. And that's what you should do with your life. You will not waste your money. You will not waste your time. You will not waste your efforts because it's Jesus's. And so now we come to the end of Matthew's gospel. What a glory-filled journey that was, right? We, 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 we witnessed Jesus' birth, his life, his teaching, his works, his arrest, his death, his burial, his resurrection. We saw Jesus talk to people like the Canaanite woman that nobody would have talked to. Nobody cared about her. Jesus loved her. We saw him heal leprous people, people who hadn't experienced a touch in decades. And Jesus doesn't just say, go and be healed. He touches them, makes them whole. We have been to the dark tomb. And now we've been on the Galilean mountain. And now here we are in Ovilla, Texas. My friend, this is your story. Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, and saved you. And he now sends you to be a disciple who makes disciples. Our king came down from heaven and sought his bride and promises that she will worship him and enjoy him forever and ever. That's us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Matthew's gospel. I pray in this poor presentation of the Great Commission that you will work your good work at raising up people. Father, that we will be engaged, that we'll participate Father, we can be so selfish sometimes. We can be so self-centered sometimes. And I ask, Father, for repentance and that we become Jesus-centered people. That you will find us faithful about your work when Jesus returns. Thank you for the truth that you have given us. Let us now be obedient to your call. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.